decades ago, a story appeared in the Baptist press about Manuel Pumasacho. He's from Ecuador. The Lord saved Manuel at age 24 from a life of drunkenness and spousal abuse and turned him into a bold witness for Christ. Uh, He was a janitor for some time and then a mechanic. And eventually he went to the seminary in Quito and also earned a law degree so he could stand up for the rights of Ecuador's indigenous evangelicals who often experience persecution. Manuel himself suffered persecution. Uh, The first time was during a service at the church near Quito. A mob of townspeople uh, burst into the sanctuary and began hitting the congregation with sticks. And the attackers, some of whom were family members, uh, even brought with them the, the, community bl- the, the community band which played while they were beating them. Another episode occurred while Manuel was leading a home Bible study. A drunken crowd stormed the house and began beating the worshipers, including Manuel's pregnant wife. Years later, Manuel taught a weekly Bible study in a home within view of the place where he was attacked years before. After some suffering, he says, I feel real joy knowing the Lord opened the store. I thank God for the persecution. Now I fear no one. I don't worry about anything. I have complete trust in the Lord. As Christians, our story intersects with Manuel's story. We've all been saved out of patterns of evil. And the Lord has made us witnesses. He has commissioned us with the same message to the same kinds of people. But how do we hold it together like Manuel did when the world opposes us? How do we jump into a Bible study just down the street from the place where we received countless beatings? How do we endure losing our business in this context when we have to reject certain health care provisions because of the ethical compromises? How do we endure losing our job over not signing that document one day requiring all employees to refrain from speaking their convictions about gender? How do we endure the threat of persecution, the the terror of torture, the fear of people as we take the gospel into a hostile world? I was talking with a nine-year-old girl this week who loves Jesus, wants to be baptized. We opened to Matthew 10, 16. I wanted her to see up front that becoming a Christian means that you become a sheep in the midst of wolves. That's lesson one for baptism. We know what happens to sheep in the midst of wolves. How do we deal with fear as sheep in the midst of wolves? The answer is in the God who is sovereign over all things and who rules through Christ and who comes to the aid of His people when we pray. The answer is in the God who is sovereign over all things, who rules through Christ and who comes to the aid of His people when we pray. That's what our passage is about. Let's start 
reading in verse 23. Let's hear the word of the Lord. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with all boldness. Father, I ask that you would be with the preaching of your Word this morning and that the Word for myself and for these people here would come with power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction and that we would all receive this Word in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And I ask that it would turn us away from our idols, that we may serve the living and true God more and more with our lives. We might be bold witnesses for Christ in an age of hostility. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter and John have boldly proclaimed Christ in the temple area. They have boldly proclaimed Christ before the Sanhedrin. Uh, now the Jewish authorities have, they have ordered them not to speak in Jesus' name. If they did speak in His name, they threatened them with punishment. And we don't have to guess what's on their minds. We already saw what they did to Jesus Christ in the Luke's Gospel. They arrested Him, they abused Him, they accused Him, and then they killed Him. You keep preaching Jesus, you'll end up like Him. In other words... At least what they thought happened to him. He was now risen from the dead. How would you respond to that situation? You keep preaching like your master, you will end up like your master. Wouldn't there be fear? Wouldn't wouldn't the temptation to compromise be great when you're facing death? I think this would test me. I I love my wife and my kids. I treasure the times we share together. I, I love their giggles. And you don't hear those in prison. And you don't see flowers in prison. And you don't see sunshine in prison. And no kisses goodnight. How does one overcome 
in a situation like this when these things are being hung over your head? Well, the church, we see, turns to their sovereign Lord in prayer. First, we see that Peter and John go back and they report to their people. They report to their people. Verse 23 says, They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So they're not suffering alone. If one member of the body suffers, all are suffering together. They report to the church. God will be with us wherever we go as individual Christians, but He's also given us one another. His presence and support become tangible through friends. Luke is distinguishing these friends from the rest of the Jews. These are the friends who've come to know Christ with them. These are the friends who down in verse 32, we'll see, have one heart and soul with each other. Christ has created new bonds between them. They stand beside each other to support each other in the mission. Redeemer, this is what we are for one another. Part of being the church is becoming friends in the gospel's advance. The kinds of friends that run to each other in times of need. The times of friends that won't let you love this world more than Christ. You call and you come together. You share your fears and your worries and you report these things so that we might then raise our voices together as, as one to the one who can truly help us. And that's where the passage moves next. They raise their voices in prayer. They raise their voices in prayer. Verse 24, And when they heard it, when they heard of these threats, they lifted their voices together to God. They pray together. And notice something about this prayer. They don't request anything until verse 29. Until then, it's nothing but Scripture and God fulfilling Scripture. Why is their prayer so saturated with Scripture? Because Scripture is where God reveals Himself and His will. See, prayer is first and foremost about recognizing who God is before it's about requesting what we need from Him. Prayer is about knowing God and then, and then shaping our requests around His kingship and, and around His will and around His purpose. What gets revealed here about God? What do we see is motivating them to pray in response to these threats by the Jewish authorities. It's God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Some people object that God's sovereignty undermines prayer. It actually inspires the prayer here. And it's not just that they know God can act. It's that they know that He has already acted. He has already planned. And now it's a matter of conforming their lives and their plans to His. To His mission. Look at the vision of God's sovereignty they, they rehearse here. First of all, verse, verse 26 reveals that God is sovereign over the universe. Sovereign means He has supreme authority and control over everything. He's sovereign over the universe. Verse 26, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea 
and everything in them. It's almost a word-for-word quote from Psalm 146, verse 6. Psalm 146 is a psalm about God delivering His oppressed people. And the idea is that God is able to help His people in their suffering. He, he created and controls everything in the universe. Heaven. He made the invisible heavenly hosts and authorities and powers, the angels. He, he made the visible celestial bodies in space and sky. The earth. All that we see from sea to sea, mountain and valleys, deserts and rainforests, beasts and bugs, all the peoples who inhabit these lands, the sea, from the smallest phytoplankton to the greatest leviathan. The idea is that from the highest heavenly realities to the deepest crevices, From cosmic things to microscopic things, God made it all and therefore He sustains it all and He rules it all and He controls it all. Guess what? When you believe in Jesus Christ, this God is your Father. Your enemies can't even threaten you without your heavenly Papa giving them breath. They're not the ones in control. They may think they're in control. You may feel like they're in control. But they're not in control. Your Father is. He is Creator. We also see here that God is sovereign over history. And we see this, by the way, the prayer develops with with a quotation from Psalm chapter 2. And and then the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2 in the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, verse 25 says that the Lord spoke through David in, in Psalm 2. And, and then in verses 27 and 28, we see how God accomplished what He predestined to take place. We see God's Word creating and determining history. And we see God's will then carrying out and doing history. All history unfolds just as God predestined it to unfold, and it cannot unfold in any other way. Even down, as we'll see in verse 27, down to the schemes of a King Herod and down to the cowardice of a Pontius Pilate. But there's a bit more we need to sort out here, and actually going to Psalm 2 will help us. So let's turn there. Flip back to Psalm 2 in your Bibles. That's where this next quotation comes from. And we have to remember something here that we've already learned in chapters 1 and 2 of Acts, and that is that, the, that David's kingship in the Old Testament, it anticipates Christ's kingship in the New Testament. David's kingship in the Old Testament anticipates Christ's kingship in the New Testament. Psalm 2 is a psalm of David. And so what David talks about in Psalm 2 about his own kingship is anticipating Jesus' kingship. Let's read it together. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. 
saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Psalm 2 is a picture of the Lord ruling the nations through His anointed Davidic king. But there's this pattern of the the nations vainly gathering against the Lord and against his, His anointed. When it says, why do the nations rage, it's not a genuine question. I wonder why that is. It's a rhetorical question. David is baffled by the stupidity of the nations raging against this king. You rage against this king, you rage against God. Kids, this would be like you making a little figure out of Play-Doh, and the Play-Doh figure starts talking smack. It's like funny, smash, like... The nations really think they can win? Of course they can't. And the Lord proves that by by vindicating this king and enthroning him in Zion. This is the place of the Lord's authority. And as a result of the vindication, the Lord is then pleased to give his son the nations, the ends of the earth as his possession. The nations can gather against him all they want, in other words. But in the end, this king will stretch his kingdom to the end of the earth and rule over all. There's no stopping him. He will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And if there's no stopping him, then the response by the end of Psalm 2 is is pretty straightforward here. Quit your resistance. Quit your rebellion. And kiss his feet in worship. Take your refuge in him, and he will bless you. Well, the apostles identify Jesus as the ultimate king of Psalm 2. He's the one against whom the nations gathered so vainly. And the church explains this in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly, it says, in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So this is picturing Jesus now as the anointed new King David the superior King David, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So we've got a king and a ruler and the nations and the peoples. All from Psalm 2. And they gather against the Lord's anointed, the Christ. That's what Christ means, the Lord's anointed. 
We know that Christ is Jesus. Jesus is God's truly anointed king. They gather against him to bump him off. But their scheming to overcome him was vain. And it's vain because the Lord had a plan in place. And guess what? They were part of it. Acts 4.28 says, To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. No one laid a hand on Jesus except by the sovereign will of His Father in heaven. Or to put it more positively, everyone did to Jesus exactly as God the Father planned. The nations raged against Jesus, but God was delivering up His Son to save the world. They were doing the most tragic in the world while God was bringing about triumph over the world. You see how that might be relevant to the disciples' suffering. A servant is not above his master. If the nations hated Jesus, they will hate us. The world's opposition to Christians is an extension of the world's opposition to Christ. They will gather against us. But God has a sovereign plan in place. Hey guys, just look at the cross. We saw this before. God has a sovereign place, a sovereign plan in place. And and in the end, it will prove how vain the the nation's efforts really are. God is in control. If Jesus conquered through dying, his people will conquer through dying. Threaten us all you want, Jewish authorities. Even the suffering of his people will be used to advance God's kingdom. And that's not the end of it. There are several other places in the New Testament where Psalm 2 is actually used to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Acts chapter 13, verse 33 is one of them. We get it a couple times in the, in, in the book of Hebrews. And they use Psalm 2 to show how God has also vindicated Jesus as king through resurrection. So Jesus is now that unstoppable king sitting in God's place of authority and advancing his rule to the ends of the earth. That's also implied in Peter's request here. When he says, perform these wonders and signs through the name of your holy servant Jesus, right? Nothing happens through the name of your holy servant Jesus unless this Jesus is truly alive. They are praying for the kingdom of this risen King Jesus now to keep advancing and keep advancing to the ends of the earth despite the threats of these men. Just as Psalm 2 lays it out, ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. But get this, and notice this, they're praying for that kingdom to advance through their own bold witness. Not, Lord, you do this quite apart from me. No, you do this through me. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You see how this goes. We talked about it. They have looked at God's sovereign plan in Scripture, and now it's about, how do I conform my life around that plan? 
Look upon their threats and you grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Notice, the request is not to escape the threats of their enemies. How can they pray that way when they just reviewed from Psalm 2 that this is the pattern of history? The nations will gather against the Lord and His anointed one. The nations hate God's king. If we're following God's king, we're going to be hated. The request also isn't that God would do away with their enemies. And there's plenty of material in Psalm 2 about God judging the nations. I mean, wouldn't we like it if sometimes if, if God just, just wiped them out? But they leave that in God's hands. As Paul says in Romans 12, they leave, they leave room for the wrath of God. King Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron one day. Yes, we can trust in that truth. But until that day comes, this is their request. Give us boldness to preach to our enemies. Not safety from our enemies, not get rid of our enemies, but boldness to keep preaching before our enemies. And that's not all. Heal them while you're at it. To make our witness all the more compelling. We won't pray like this unless we first have a vision of God's sovereignty like this. Crying out for boldness to stand as a sheep in the midst of wolves, that won't be there unless you first capture God's greatness and absolute rule over all things. Christians who run around scared and worried and fretful in life have not yet come to know God's sovereignty truly. When God is small, people will be big. And you will be scared. But when your God owns the universe and orchestrates all things in history for His glory and to your advantage, then you'll ask for boldness like this. We also won't pray like this unless we see ourselves as slaves of Jesus Christ. That's the better translation in verse 29. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your slaves. Your slaves. Not slave in the sense of demeaning someone's personal worth, but slave in the sense of all rights surrendered. All rights to comfort in this life, all rights to the ease of schedule, all rights to abnormal American freedoms... All rights to safety behind our locks, alarms, guns, and holy homeschool huddles. All rights to the blessings of your little girl's laughs in the evening. All rights surrendered to King Jesus, the Sovereign, to speak the gospel boldly in enemy territory. You see, the slave says, I'm yours, do with me as you please to make Jesus known. And God answers this prayer then in verse 31. The disciples receive the Spirit's power. They receive the Spirit's power. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. When you see all there, don't just think that these guys are, they went back and just talked to the apostles. We're talking about the church gathered here. It's not just the apostles being filled with boldness. It's the whole church being filled with boldness. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Sometimes in Scripture, places shook when God arrived. 
Think of Mount Sinai. The whole mountain trembled greatly, it says. We're dealing with another one of these instances when God manifests His power. The entire place is shaken. Now, there are other times in Scripture when God's presence fills the church and the meeting place is not shaken. So, don't turn this into more than what it is. It's not setting a precedent for us to be expecting shaking buildings. But it is setting a precedent for us to want God's power to manifest itself in us and through us. It is setting a precedent for for us to want and long for the filling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit empowers the church to preach Christ. God doesn't call us to preach Christ to our enemies without going with us. His Spirit is our helper... When the threats come, he gives us the wherewithal to push forward in love and self-sacrifice and bold witness to the truth. We cannot do this, but the Spirit can. So the answer to our question, how do we hold it together when the world opposes us? We certainly don't do it on our own. We hold it together by trusting in the God who is sovereign over all things, who rules through Christ, and who comes to the aid of His people when we pray. So, maybe a few exhortations as we close here. Number one, imitate the early church in praying the Scriptures. Imitate the early church in praying the Scriptures. As I said before, prayer is first and foremost about recognizing who God is before it's about requesting what we need. Prayer is about knowing God and then shaping our requests around His kingship and His, and His will and His purposes. I'm not saying that there won't be these times where you just say, I need help, help me God. And you're not sitting there thinking like, well, I have to quote a scripture first. I'm not saying that. Say that in general, this is what prayer is about. Prayer is about acknowledging who God is, and then let's shape my, shape my will around His. The, the Scriptures reveal God to us. Okay, They reveal His purpose for the world. Verse 25 says that God spoke through David by the Holy Spirit. You want a text right there for why this Bible is the inspired Word of God? Let's just pull out that drawer, drop that text in, shut it there, save it for later in that doctrine. But here we go. God spoke through David by the Holy Spirit. Psalm 2 was breathed out by God, and it tells us exactly how history is going to be and how history is going to end. How's history going to be? Everybody's going to gather against the Lord and His anointed. How's history going to end? Jesus Christ will rule from sea to sea. And the rest of your Bible is the same way. We have God's very words to know God, to think God's thoughts after Him, to see the world as He sees it, to see our sufferings as He sees our sufferings. And this shapes our prayers and what we desire in prayer. How many times you sit down and pray and you just don't know what to pray for? And you just give up and go, home, go, go, go to work? How many times have difficult circumstances come into your life and, and you don't know how to pray? 
Here's something very easy. In those times, open the Bible, read a verse, and pray it. Start praying what it says, just like you see them doing here. You, You can be confident that you're praying God's will when you're praying Scripture. Moreover, you will get a true vision of God from the Scripture and a true vision of the world and a true vision of your circumstances and it will change how you interpret your circumstances and how you respond to your circumstances in faithfulness to the Lord. That leads us to number two. Pray as a slave of Christ. Pray as a slave of Christ. It's not enough for us to confess that God is sovereign. We must also be His slaves. How many Christians, especially in our circles, have a grand vision of God's sovereignty? They can talk a big vision of God, and yet the attitude of being His slave seems far away. They complain about every little thing in life, They get impatient with every little thing that doesn't go their way. They run around scared and worried. I could go on and on about these kinds of Christians, but that's enough about myself. Truly acknowledging God's sovereignty necessitates humble submission to His will as slave. Did it occur to you that Jesus knew Psalm 2? was about him. Psalm 2 determined his course in life. After 33 years of meditation on this psalm, his prayer in the garden was still this, not my will, but yours be done. And his submission became our redemption. We can't confess a big God and then live as if He's smaller than us. We're His slaves in all circumstances. Our question is, how can I serve my Master faithfully? Whatever my Master's predetermined plan may deal to me, how might I serve Him in it? These apostles can't change the threats of the Jewish authorities. They can't change these circumstances that are in. They're hard, they're afraid, they're worried, but their prayer is, make me faithful to you, Lord. Show me how to receive this suffering. Show me how to receive these threats and make me a bold witness for Christ in it. That's the attitude of a slave. Number three, take your fears to the Lord and pray for boldness to preach Christ. Take your fears to the Lord and pray for boldness to preach Christ. We find here a a transcendent vision of God's sovereignty. And yet at the same time, we see God's imminence, God's nearness to His people, God's concern for us. The Lord sits in the heavens and He laughs at the nations. But yet the same God is concerned about His people. The passage isn't saying that we'll get to this place as Christians where we never experience fear. Fear is actually a very human response to pressures of of life. It's not saying that 
That we're going to never experience fear, but that God is our refuge when we fear. So take your fears to Him. He's concerned for them. Ask, like Psalm 56 says, when I am afraid. When I am afraid. I put my trust in you. I will trust you in God whose word I praise. I will trust in the Lord. What can man do to me? And then pray for boldness and courage. And that exhortation isn't for those who tend to be intimidated by evangelism. It's also for those of us who are bolder in evangelism. Peter and John were already very bold, but that doesn't keep them from praying that God would grant to His servants to continue, to continue to speak His Word with all boldness. Every Christian needs God's help in boldness. I mean, think about it. Paul. I mean, he's pretty easy to select. Select a bold Christian from the New Testament. Most of us, Paul, uh, be pretty easy answer. Paul's locked up in prison for the gospel. That's pretty bold. But, Paul still writes this request in Ephesians 6.19. Pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul needs boldness to preach the gospel. Or think about Peter. Later on in his ministry. I mean, he's very bold here before the Sanhedrin, but what happens in Galatians 2 when all of his Jewish buddies show up from back home? He's doing just fine eating with the Gentiles. They show up. He separates himself from the Gentiles. This this man fear creeps in, and he doesn't walk in step with the gospel. Sounds like some of us. Bold to preach the gospel on the streets, and we go home for Christmas, and it's hard... Can't hardly say a word over the dinner table to our lost family members and friends. Just because you're bold once doesn't mean you'll always be that way. And just because you're bold in one setting doesn't mean you'll always be bold in another. We need constant prayer for boldness. Our flesh is weak, the devil is terrible. Death is our enemy. People are intimidating. Pray for boldness. And finally, trust God's sovereignty in opposition. Trust God's sovereignty in opposition. Even in the midst of the nations raging and the peoples plotting against Christ, God was fulfilling His purpose, as as we've seen here. God, God wasn't reacting to the circumstances. He planned the circumstances. The cross was His design to save the world. If God has has already fulfilled part of Psalm 2 by gathering the nations against Jesus and also fulfilled another part of Psalm 2 by also vindicating Jesus, seated Him in His right hand as King, all that's left now is for Jesus to extend His rule to the ends of the earth. And nothing can stop his, this sovereign king, Jesus, from, from doing that. 
Even the opposition we face won't stop the onward march of the gospel. As we see here, the attacks on the church only drive them to their knees and God gives them even more boldness to preach. Now, can you imagine, one of Luke's purposes is an apologetic purpose. Can you imagine being this guy, Theophilus, reading this book and you see... The Jewish authorities, what are they doing? They're threatening these guys. They go back and pray and they have even more boldness because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Part of Luke's purpose in this is to show these unbelieving guys like Theophilus, this is a work of God and you ain't going to be able to stop it. These guys can threaten the church all they want. Jesus is going to build it. The same thing happens in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Paul is talking about his own imprisonment. He's been locked up, writes this letter from prison, and and now he says this to them, to the Philippian church. I want you to know, brothers, that uh, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And on top of that, most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You lock these guys up in prison and people inside the prison are getting saved and people outside the prison are becoming more bold because of the guy in prison to preach the gospel. One of the purposes for Paul's suffering is to spread the gospel. The whole imperial guard has heard the gospel because of it. The Christians back in Rome are preaching more boldly because of it. Paul might be bound in chains as a criminal, but as 2 Timothy 2.9 says, the gospel is not bound. The word of God is not bound. God is sovereign to advance his purpose in Christ even through the opposition we face. And we must trust him in it. I mean, we could even think about Revelation chapter 6. You know, Revelation is written for a suffering church, for a persecuted Church, And we see these cries of the, of the martyrs in, in chapter 6. A cry that's similar to the one we see here in Acts. With sovereign, Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. But listen to God's plan. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God has more martyrs. The full number of them has not been complete. And yet this plan, this sovereign plan, as we see, as you keep reading, like in chapter 12 of Revelation, it says that these very people he's talking about, how do they conquer? They have conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimonies, for they love not their lives unto death. They're conquering through dying, and then by the end of Revelation, of course, we see them resurrected and reigning with Christ at the end of the age. His plans are not 
foiled by the opposition. We must trust the Lord. In, in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 11, it asks this question. How does the knowledge of God's providence, His sovereignty, help us? The answer is this. We can be patient when things go against us. We can be thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from His love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without His will, they can neither move nor be moved. Let's pray together.